0: This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Humane Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. On September 20th, 2013, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals hosted the third annual Living with Wildlife Conference in Vancouver, British Columbia. Defender Radio Special Report In this special report, you will hear the entire presentation from Sarah Dubois, Manager of Wildlife Services for the BC SPCA. To find out more about Sarah, or see videos, photos, and other speakers, visit furbeardefenders.com. But it is very appropriate because a lot of the themes this morning that uh, were discussed by our wonderful speakers were about feeding. So I'm uh, happy to, to bring this subject um, to the presentation today. So I do work for the BCSPCA, and a lot of people think, of course, the BCSPCA is or cat and dog shelter uh, but little do you know we actually have a, a wildlife services department we uh, operate a wildlife rehabilitation center outside of Victoria called wild Ark we also have a farm animal program and a stakeholder relations department that works with government agencies and looking at humane policy so we're not just your cat and dog shelter uh, but wildlife is definitely a part of our mandate as and the animal welfare program, I'm just finishing up my PhD there. And the animal welfare program at UBC is really well known for its work on improving the lives of farm animals, and most recently, uh, research animals and maps. And we do have a couple of students working on wildlife projects. So, again, both of these organizations have a little, little tiny component in wildlife, but uh, I think a big role to play. So, wildlife feeding is one of those things that really is kind of my pet peeve, uh, and I really believe that it does a lot more harm than good, and we've seen some evidence of that this morning. The first time I brought this topic uh, to a conference was at the Columbia Mountains Institute of Applied Ecology last April, and I got a lot of really great questions from people in the audience, um, and a lot of great discussion that came out of that. At that time, I connected a preliminary Uh, survey of bylaws in British Columbia about wildlife feeding and garbage and attractants of about 50 municipalities at that time. But have now completed that so that we're going to talk about the 155 municipalities and their results today. Since that time in Cranbrook, we discussed uh, a lot of deer issues and those deer issues have continued. Um, We're going to touch on some of the urban deer conflicts that uh, we're facing in B.C. But one of the major things that came out of this inquiry into wildlife feeding was that I really needed to get an overview of all the motivations behind wildlife feeding in order to understand and perhaps stop Wildlife feeding—we need to understand really why people are doing it, and there have been a lot of great studies on that. Also, we want to review the types of feeding. We send a lot of mixed messages, not only through research and management of wildlife, um, but sometimes in tourism, to people that it's okay to feed some animals sometimes, but then we, you know, we don't want people coming to Stanley Park and feeding our raccoons. But yet, we might go on vacation and go snorkeling and feed some fish, right? So there's a lot of mixed messages we need to sort out here. So we conducted a a thorough review of types and motivations in order to propose a framework of acceptability as to what is appropriate to feed and when, based on biological merits but also ethical consequences. And this is just going to publication that's been accepted in the online publication so it's freely accessible uh, animals and it should be out very shortly. the science of animal welfare is the novel thing here that we've introduced to uh, assessing wildlife uh, feeding. But typically, people look at feeding as, okay, is this benefiting conservation? Is it a public safety issue? Um, but asking the question about individuals' animals and the impacts on them is something that uh, hasn't quite been done very often. When we say animal welfare, it's understood to be different things by different people, so I'm just going to clarify what the term here in using the science of animal welfare. Uh, it was actually uh, a scientific... Um, paradigm and it's the assessment of the quality of life of animals and it includes three major factors and that is the promotion of health both physical and psychological well-being as well as the prevention of suffering. When we think of suffering we think of not only the severity but how long the suffering goes on as well as allowing animals to live in, uh, as suited to their natural adaptations. So those are three aspects of, of welfare that we use in uh, science. You now, sometimes conservation and animal welfare seem like they can butt heads and are not very compatible. But in fact, if you really look into both sciences, they are multidisciplinary and they're setting out to determine both facts and to identify value-based beliefs in response to societal concerns. And they both make policy recommendations. So they actually have quite a bit in common. But, um, more importantly, they really have a shared goal. And both want to reduce harms to wildlife. And they have a shared problem. in that we have a growing human population and industrialization. So conservation and animal welfare, uh, we need to, to really become better friends, let's just say. When we look at wildlife feeding, we have to really understand why people do it. And so a number of studies have gone into this to, uh, the measure why people are doing it, who's doing it, um, and how frequently. And they've found that there's a number of different reasons behind, um, why. So first, of course, it's, you know, pretty obvious just to have that close contact. Maybe you really enjoy looking at these animals close up, feeling useful by providing the food to them. Gaining an animal's trust is often cited as a reason to feed them. People want to get close to photograph. Maybe that's uh, another big one. Getting a closer, greater connectedness with nature, or maybe it's an educational activity for others. I'm not just talking about, you know, our typical bears and uh, coyotes and wolves here. We're talking everything from birds uh, in parks to raccoons, all, all animals here. There's also ethical reasons that people want to feed wildlife. They feel that maybe they need to compensate for a lack of natural foods in the ecosystem because of human degradation in this uh, environment. But also they feel a protection and attachment to these animals. And they feel that what they're doing actually benefits them. They're helping these animals. So that's a big thing here. Because what we've seen more and more is that people are starting to have a blurred distinction. So we know that people who don't like wildlife trap and kill them, perhaps if they want to get rid of nuisance animals, but people who love wildlife love them a little too much. And they might think of them as their pets, as part of their family. And we saw this in Christina Lake, unfortunately, when uh, someone identified these animals as his bears that he was feeding on a property for a decade. And unfortunately, those bears had to be uh, eventually destroyed because of their uh, problem behaviors. So... Distinctly, we talked today already about lovely and unintentional feeding of wildlife. So there are great programs out there that are trying to prevent this by in- educating people about how to maintain their garbage, what's uh, proper, you know, even to the landfill sites and, and use of transfer stations, composting, how to make sure your, your bird feeders are not becoming intractants. So I've got a lot of great programs out there trying to educate people about that. But when we look at intentional feeding, we can break this up into different types. You've got animals in captivity and animals that are free living. So a captive example, of course, is wildlife rehabilitation. These animals are dependent on people, so we have a, a, a duty to care for them and provide them with husbandry. But when we break down the animals that are in a free living environment, we have animals that are in research programs. And animals that are in management, as well as tourism and opportunistic feeding of wildlife. That's where the, the urban wildlife conflict often comes into this opportunistic category. So I'm just going to run through these categories briefly. So feeding and wildlife research, not something we, we hear but often, but scientific studies do undertake direct or undirect feeding to actually observe animals very closely. They want to answer ecological or biological questions, maybe like a home range size, uh, growth rates, behavior, reproduction, distribution. But thankfully, most of these studies are short-term. They have small sample sizes, and they're using natural foods. So they're not throwing out bread to the ducks to see what the ducks do next. Um, these are often improved, of course, by ethical review committees if they're done at a university. And, of course, if they're going to be published in a study, the journal is going to make sure that they had some type of ethical review. So there's a lot of checks and balances to these, we hope. Now, wildlife feeding in management, some of you might be familiar, this is a um, winter deer feeding. Uh, This is when an agency would conduct supplemental feeding, it's also called, to achieve a very specific conservation objective. So that might be increased survival of a population or to reduce conflict in a situation. So again, there's, there's an intended purpose to the feeding. An example of this might be endangered species recovery preventing human-wildlife conflicts. They've done this in South Africa, for example. Baboons are a really big problem. They raid people's homes. It's very dangerous. And so they've done actually feeding stations for baboons to keep them away from people's homes just to manage that conflict. And then we have winter ungulate feeding, as demonstrated in the photo, and baiting for hunting. So again, these are often undertaken by an agency or um, as a directive of an agency. But notice, I've asterisked the last two, and I'm going to come back to those. So feeding in tourism is something we don't always think about until it happens in our backyard, and we try to scold the tourist for feeding the raccoons in Stanley Park. But sometimes we engage in these activities without really thinking about the consequences, because we leave, and we don't uh, realize what's happening. Many, many species are involved in um, ecotourism activities, for the fish, sharks, stingrays, dolphins, crocodiles, Bears and spare feeding for tourism, uh, and monkeys, especially in Asia. So when we get these animals in these programs, they become often food conditioned individuals. There can be nutritional issues if they're not, if they're being fed the same thing all the time. The diversity in their diet is obviously gone. They become dependent sometimes on these unreliable sources that might only be active for that tourist season. And it become more susceptible to predators and to vehicle collisions, both in the water and on land. And it can really lead to uh, aggressive behavior between people, or with people, sorry, uh, as well as food-seeking aggression between animals, social stress that's caused by that aggression, as well as decreased health, reproduction, and fitness. The final type of feeding here uh, is going to be opportunistic. As we call it in our framework, that includes when it happens in your backyard and parks, roadsides. Often these are animals that are seen as harmless, so it's not a big deal to slip a few peanuts or throw them a the little crumbs from your, you know, sandwich. Um, but there are exact same consequences to these uh, animals as well as to people. Sometimes, uh, when you, you know, a, a little bite from a squirrel or a chipmunk might not hurt too much, uh, but you know, it might lead to infection. You never know. So some risks here, and it's going to contribute more so to nuisance wildlife issues and poor animal welfare is our concern. Now, bird feeding. Bird feeding, whether you support it or not, um, it is going to be the, the most widespread form of human-wildlife interaction in the world. So we do have to recognize it's happening, and how do we just make sure we manage it appropriately? The concerns that are here that we do need to consider is the provision of uh, inappropriate foods but we can manage that with proper education Um, disease at feeders can be in a welfare issue window strikes uh, cat predation is a big one increased aggression between animals uh, whether they're same species or interspecies dependency. Again, by the way we manage our bird feeding, we can hopefully prevent uh, a number of these issues. A recent paper just came out, was one of the first that said bird feeding actually has a negative impact on future breeding of uh, one particular population of birds. So before, there's always support for bird feeding because of uh, the need to supplement populations to get through a winter, for example. Um, but perhaps there's more research that needs to be done and, and we'll find out some populations, it's not, they're not quite true. So after doing this review of all these motivations, all the types of wildlife feeding that are going on out there, we were able to determine there are several factors to assessing when is it appropriate to feed animals or not. Um, and... The first is the ability to control that activity. So can we regulate it? Can we monitor it? Can we intervene if there's a problem? And is there a real public safety concern, especially when we're talking about big species? We also looked at the effects of conservation, um, on conservation. So is it saving an endangered species? Is it ensuring the survival of a population? Is it helping us understand that population better? Is there a tremendous economic benefit to the local economy or an educational outcome that's coming from this feeding activity? And is it ensuring that we're not increasing the risk of disease or of poaching by doing this feeding activity? And the final factor is the effects on animal welfare. So how many animals are we talking about? What's the duration of the feeding? Does it cause this physical or psychological stress among animals? And does it still encourage natural foraging? So, by using these three factors, we've created like a matrix to evaluate all the different types of feeding examples there are out there. So, we've ranked, um, you know, high to low within the three factors, uh, the activities, just to provide a general guideline to managers and policymakers about the appropriateness of feeding. Now, there's going to be some variation. There's always a few exceptional examples based on the species involved, or particularly a tourism operator. So, you know, the person actually in, in tourism who has the control or lack of control, shall we say. So the big question is, when is it acceptable to feed? Um, and we, we did this because we really do want to provide um, some type of, you know, a clear, comprehensive matrix to, to set out these examples. And when we look at it, the framework, we can say that it's acceptable to participate in wildlife feeding only when it can be controlled it has a beneficial conservation effect, and it does not compromise an animal's long-term welfare, nor does it have a negative consequence on non-target species. And that's something we don't always think about, is what's happening to the other animals in the environment as a result of this feeding. So, overall, if we look at all the examples in the world of research in the world of management feeding, they're generally acceptable. They can be highly controlled, they have an intended conservation uh, purpose, and the long-term welfare is not impacted uh, too negatively. But I put this asterisk here, because we're going to go back to thinking about uh, baiting and wildlife. Sometimes it's for research purposes, hunting purposes, vaccination purposes. Um, there are some consequences to gathering wild animals in, in large groups. There's potential for disease to uh, there's potential for predators like other species to come in to unnaturally inflate their populations because you're feeding all of them now. So there are some negative consequences to baiting, for hunting, um, and even winter deer feeding. There are some issues and concerns with disease. So those have fallen uh, outside of uh, this recommendation. Now in tourism and opportunistic feeding, these were generally unacceptable. Now, the one exception we have considered here is uh, the concept that's more and more, we, we see this uh, in uh, some of the more tropical places, the phenomenon of shark feeding. Now, it's, we haven't studied it long enough to know what the long-term animal welfare impacts are. But the reality in many of these countries are um, developing countries and the alternative to shark feeding and tourism to that local economy shark finning. So if an animal's life is worth more dead than alive, that's a problem. So in those cases, we've said that tourism feeding of of sharks in those cases makes the value of that animal actually alive more than it is dead. So that obviously has an impact on its welfare as as well as its conservation. So urban wildlife feeding specifically, of course, is, is what, uh, I want to discuss here. And th- this came up earlier today. Um, you know, we've traditionally targeted wildlife to address feeding issues. We trans, you know, we relocated them. We've called them. We use adverse conditioning. And that often has short term success, poor welfare consequences, and there's a lack of social tolerance for some of these, uh, activities. There's growing recognition that's evident by all the people in this room today. That the long-term solutions need to include altering human behaviors. So public education. The problem with public education, and I was glad to hear that from some of the nonprofits um, today, that they struggle because it's grant funded, it's often volunteer run, it is not sustainable to offload this responsibility to a nonprofit organization that depends on a handful of people, um, and if they move on from the, that group, um, you know, w- what happens to that program? It's it's, it's uh, not sustainable, and we have to really address that. Policy. So the regulations and bylaws that are passed uh, frequently, uh, we've seen this in British Columbia, a lot of municipalities have taken interest in passing anti-deer feeding bylaws, uh, but we don't really know if they're successful or if they're being enforced appropriately right now. And one of the things I think we need to really come around to is that we have to place a social stigma we have to, you know, shame people into feeding is not okay anymore. And I think we can do this by really equating it to other animal harms. It took a long time for the world to come around to the idea that childhood obesity might be a child endangerment problem. Well, feeding wildlife is an animal abuse problem. We just don't, haven't thought about it in those terms before. But through this framework, we've been able to, to really look at those consequences in that, in that light. And we have to remember we have to be consistent. What we do at home and what we do abroad has to be consistent for the basis of this to work. So, just going back to this bylaw assessment, uh, through February to May last year, the website, uh, you know, research as well as phone contacts to many municipalities, animal control agencies, to look at all the wildlife feeding bylaws or garbage bylaws in 155 municipalities to see, you know, what was the enforcement like, how many tickets did they issue last year. Other problems in their community that aren't being dealt with just because of a lack of resources right now. So out of 155, 72% had no bylaws in place that either considered garbage attractants or intentional wildlife feeding. They, of course, felt that uh, you know having at least some coverage by the province that dangerous wildlife. So remember the species that came up earlier in Dan's presentation. Um, that those are covered by Provincial Wildlife Act. And conservation officers can investigate those, but any other species—raccoons, skunks, you know, squirrels—those aren't covered. And there are many issues um, that are, of course, that we see um, through wildlife rehabilitation centers with these animals being trapped and injured because people find them a nuisance because they've been feed- fed in their neighborhoods. nine percent, so that's only 14 municipalities had. Restrictive garbage bylaws. So those were the ones where you can put out your, your, your garbage in the morning only. You had to keep it in wildlife-resistant containers. Um, but the, you know they, they didn't quite always address compost. So that's, I think, a big thing. And I, I'm very curious to know what Critter because my own complex where I live in Estrada has just implemented this new composting system for a multi-use complex. And I, I'm quite concerned. I, I live on Burnaby Mountain. There's bears everywhere. There's coyotes everywhere. I want to make sure that we're not going to be that strata that attracts those animals. 12% had feeding-only bylaws. So they didn't have anything related to garbage or attractants, but they did specifically talk about um, bird feeders. Uh, You can't feed in a park. But they were really scattered as to what species. You can't feed deer in five municipalities. You can't feed wildlife in one, you cannot feed pigeons in another. So they obviously came up as individual cases that that municipality had a problem with. But you move over next street over, you're in a new municipality, and all of a sudden those bylaws don't apply. You know, there's a lack of consistency here. And finally, 7% had a combination of garbage and feeding bylaws. But again, they only address mammals. So people feed birds, geese, ravens, crows, and there's a lot of issues, so we're missing, we're missing some animals here. So overall, findings were that there's very inconsistent application of bylaws in British Columbia. We're not addressing all species. Uh, it wasn't a high priority for a lot of municipalities. You know, it it's just um, one more thing uh, on a long list of bylaws that they had to enforce. There were very few fines that were actually given out, and most fines were extremely low. It wasn't even worth going out to give the fine. A lot of the municipalities said, of course, educational approaches are always used first be- before there's any uh, fine. Uh, but they were really, it was interesting to hear. Many of them had the same situation that there's always that one or two properties that's consistently coming up for complaint. And they put the bylaw in because of that one person. So repeat offenders are actually a common theme in a lot of this work. And I think that's where we, we need to really start to understand how we can stop some of this. So, urban deer feeding, as we're going to hear about this afternoon, uh, has been a significant issue for the past couple years in the province, Uh, feeding as well as conflict um, and other other issues surrounding urban deer. So, in Cranbrook, Kimberley, and Invermere, they've all conducted fairly controversial calls and there are more uh, communities facing this issue, including the CRD. 172 deer were killed uh, during these calls because of nuisance complaints, fear of public safety. Uh, They were not um, killed because there was a disease concern or an environmental impact. There have been calls in British Columbia before on some of our islands uh, because of these reasons, Um, but in these cases, in these communities, those weren't the factors. Urban deer feeding was cited as a concern in the ungulate report. Um, and I think the most telling, actually, is a study from Erin McCants. She presented in, in Cranbrook, and I've since uh, corresponded with her to find out about her results. And she actually trapped deer throughout the city of Winnipeg and finally determined that they're all going to the same spots because there are repeat feeders in the city of Winnipeg. And it was only until they increased their fines to $350 that they went out and actually fined people that that feeding stopped. So they've definitely, um, you know, gone and said, you know what, the educational approach isn't working. We need to take a step up. Uh, and, and they've been able to address a lot of uh, the attractant issues uh, as a result. So how do we silence this dinner or lunch bell? Well, uh, it, it's very challenging. As uh, many of us know, there's there's many different factors here, but I think if we can co- combine both proactive enforcement and education by right, all of these groups working together, we need to have consistency of bylaws. We need to apply it to all wildlife, and we need to target repeat offenders, and I think that would be a big first step. We also need to research some of these direct measures that are going to affect people's behavior. They know that we need to understand their motivations so that we can you know, educate them on why it's inappropriate to be feeding these animals. And I think by using animal welfare science again, we're going to get at the people who think they're doing good. They think they're helping the animals. So we t- equate feeding wildlife inappropriately, as uh, as we've seen, is actually quite a serious harm to to animals. So we need to put it on that same level as cruelty uh, in in wildlife. And if we can find some all. Alternatives that are humane to satisfy our desire to connect with wildlife. You know, thankfully, more and more technology is allowing us to do that by having webcams on uh, wildlife. Hopefully, we can keep our own visual appetite for wildlife in check. This is Defender Radio.